What is God's beauty? Can we see it? Can we feel it? If we go looking for his beauty in scripture, what are we looking for? If we go looking for his beauty in creation, where do we find it? Answers to questions like these comprise the essence of my favorite book of 2018, Jonathan King's The Beauty of the Lord, Theology as Aesthetics, published by Lexham Press. Jonathan King was a new author to me in 2018. I discovered that in seminary he studied under Michael Horton, and he completed his Ph.D. work at TEDS under Kevin Van Hooser. Jonathan now serves as lecturer in the Faculty of Liberal Arts at the Universitas Polita Harapan in Indonesia. Today I'm breaking the mold. This will this will be a long conversation. I suspect it'll go an hour or so. Jonathan joins me from his apartment in Jakarta. It's uh it's 7 a.m. in Minneapolis, 8 p.m. Jakarta. I'm still waking up. Jonathan, hello. Thank you for your book, The Beauty of the Lord, Theology as Aesthetics. As you know, for many of us, beauty is a very subjective concept, uh, and d- divine beauty is for us really even more abstract altogether. But but here at DG, of course, we love talking about God's beauty, Christ's beauty, the beauty of the cross, even, uh, and of course, we should. Aesthetically, of course, all of us are moved by beautiful music, beautiful paintings, beautiful images that we like uh, on Instagram. We respond to beauty instinctually. Um, In your excellent book, you argue that divine beauty is objective. It's defined by a certain uh, fittingness. Uh, So let's dive right into it. Take, Take as long as you need. Explain this connection for us between beauty and fittingness in Scripture. Yeah, it's well, it's something like um, the definition of beauty that I start with kind of as, a, as my baseline uh, is coming from the, the early, early classical uh, patristic and medieval period uh, where where there the concept of beauty was was, was not a sideline and it certainly wasn't just a subjective thing. Mm-hmm. The gist of, of, of a definition of beauty, is something like this beauty is an intrinsic quality of things, which when when it's perceived pleases the mind by a certain kind of fittingness. Now, it's contextual, but within a given context, when some, when you perceive something, you see it's both objective with a subjective uh, response elicited to it. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea of, uh, I apply the idea of fittingness as an overarching term, which, which captures the, the range of aesthetic properties uh, that identify innumerable qualities of beauty. So, so fittingness, of course, is it's a um, with res- the same type of quality may or may not be fitting within a given context of beauty. That that's why I think it's it's a very good term, kind of a, a more an umbrella type of term, mm-hmm. but a term that can be applied. And you you wouldn't just say something has uh, uh, is, is the delicacy of something or the boldness or something, you know, is, 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 is a fine quality. You, you would say within a, a certain setting, a certain dimension, a certain context, it, it, it is or is not fitting, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the judgment of fittingness, therefore, it implies uh, a judgment about the degree uh, to which something or, or someone exhibits beauty. So, so, but that something or, or someone is not limited to to an object or a thing as we as we normally uh, think of uh, in such terms. Uh, it includes uh, actions and expressions uh, as well. Uh, when we when you want me to, uh, you've asked about relating beauty and fittingness uh, in in regards from scripture. I mean, right right at the very beginning, 
uh, of Scripture, you know, when God created the heavens and the earth, of course, uh, in the Greek, uh, that, that's captured by the word uh, cosmos. Uh, and cosmos uh, it itself it implies an ordered, an ordered uh, arrangement to things. Uh, it's a combination of both orderliness and adornment. And it's in its uh, kind of kind of uh, embedded within that meaning. The the Hebrew text, of course, doesn't use you know doesn't use the word universe. But when when it talks about the heavens and the earth or uh, the host of heaven, for instance, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, we it, it's used the, the word cosmos. Mm -hmm. So as an example, in, in Acts seventeen twenty four. Of course, in the New Testament, it says uh, the God who made the world cosmos and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now, I don't want to, you know, make, uh, you know, try to wring too much out of this. But but I, I do want to just kind of set the stage that right from the beginning, the, 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 the creation, uh, there, there's implied a certain orderliness. And then from that, do we see fittingness in different ways? And then. Uh, being being spelled out in uh, right right at the beginning uh, of the Bible, when God makes His assessment of the days of creation being good, and then ultimately the the uh, uh, at the end of day six, all of creation being very good, the assessment there includes an assessment of God's delight mm -hmm. in His creation. The word tov, the Hebrew word tov, is is not just uh, something that's that's proper and good in some. Uh, a functional sense, but it, but it has ethical and aesthetic uh, uh, connotations as well. Uh, reflecting on the translation of, of that text into Greek in the Septuagint, those translators uh, translated tov to the word to the Greek word kalos. Kalos is is uh, is rich with this aesthetic connotation. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's 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 it has this idea of being aesthetically beautiful, morally excellent noble, organically sound, desirable, and praiseworthy, and such things as that. So I guess what I want to highlight here is that we have a thick theological, uh, we want to have a thick theological picture, right from the, right from the very project of creation itself. We want to have that thickness, and not, and not importing, we don't have to import anything in artificially. I think it's, it's, it's their kind of implied connotations. Now, the fittingness we see, you know, right in the way that the, the aesthetic sense of fittingness is is right in the way God set up the realms and and the habitat habitants of those realms. Mm -hmm. We see how the forming of habitations characterizes the first three days, while the filling of those habitations with inhabitants respectively fit for them characterizes days four to six. In other words, the artistic patterning depicting the archetypal week of creation displays the aesthetic aspect entails in God's expressed covenant uh, creational purposes. Now, that's just one example, uh, kind of, you know, at the beginning. But what we can kind of tease out is that things there is a fittingness. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if there if there if there ever should be a fittingness that that is consequential, it, it, it needs to be right at the very beginning. In other words, that it was intended and designed and created by God just so. Now, in terms of the more, I don't know what's uh, fall, going back to God as creator what, uh, and, and, and the very nature of God, what, what I want to, uh, uh, what I argue is that beauty corresponds in some way to the attributes of God.
Mm-hmm. Now, now, I, when I get get to the doctrine of God part of my book, which is chapter two, I I, I do argue strongly uh, and definitively that that beauty actually is an attribute of God, not just somehow somehow associated with the attributes. But you know, we start off with just kind of posing that question, um, and 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 then, but as an attribute of God, as part of God's nature, or somehow reflective of His nature. Um, the work of God, the work of God outside of himself, creation, redemption, consummation, the overall work and all the work of God is I, I, my, my, my claim, my argument is that it's a, there's a consistent and fitting expression of the outworking of God's beauty of divine beauty. So, so create all, all that God does is certainly more (laughs) than just beautiful, but it's not less than that either. Right. It's it's all imbued inherently because the the uh, the the at least as in my what I'm putting forward is that beauty is inherent to God and, it, and it's reflective of everything that He does, which is the outward uh, expression of His glory. Mm-hmm. So, but where this really comes to its 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 kind of concreteness. You know, it's not just in talking about the you know, nature of God and in, in his triuneness and so forth, although as, as fun, as, as critical as, as that needs to be established or, or, or at least kind of argued for, you know, in the in the in the expression of God in, in the in the person of Christ, the most central claim, the most central claim after arguing that beauty is uh it's appropriate to to say that beauty is part of God's very nature and is a quality of, of, of the very outward expression of his glory. I argue that the son's fittingness as incarnate redeemer is the critical lens for seeing God's beauty. So again, the son's fittingness. Now Christ became, uh, you know, we just celebrated, you know, that we're still in January. We celebrated Christmas last month, the incarnation of the babe, Mm -hmm. the child Jesus, but from his birth all the way up, you know, until his, his, his uh, death and then po- post-death, his resurrection, ascension into heaven. There's the, the form of Christ was not just static, was not just the same. He uh, in this world, he, he didn't come as, as the the uh, he didn't display himself to the natural eye. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know what I'm kind of getting at there, but he didn't display himself to the normal way that people were perceiving him in majestic glory, triumph and power. He, he, he presented himself in a very humble means. And that was all, you know, intentional. That was by design. Uh, traditionally, of course, we refer to that as Christ being in the state of his humiliation prior to uh, his re- uh, exaltation. There's a fittingness throughout the entire life of Christ. And that fittingness is kind of captures or at least points to the idea that it's, it's sourced from the very beauty of God itself. Hmm. Critical lens indeed. Um, so everything Christ did in redemption perfectly fit our need, perfectly displayed God. Therefore, everything Christ is and does and says is essentially beautiful. Exactly. Exactly right. Excellent. I want to I want to talk history for a moment and then return to something fascinating that you say about the glory of Christ in human form. First, what I found your book to be a great help in decoding for me is how older Christians like Augustine and Anselm speak of divine beauty. There's always been some disconnect as I've read their works and a lot of works, medieval, even Edwards, talking about beauty. You mentioned the Greek origins of the concept of beauty as an influence. How does... 
How does that influence inform how we read the early church fathers when it comes to to beauty? Yeah, and that's uh, that's something that I'm uh, you know there's a lot of work today uh, in evangelical circles, evangelical and reformed circles on uh, retrieving retrieve uh, efforts of retrieval going back to the uh, the early sources and and seeing what the the church fathers and schoolmen had to say and and trying to you know appropriate it anew. Well, uh, my work is not simply a work of retrieval, although it, it, it sort of is. In that, I, I look at some of the prominent theologians and schoolmen in both the East and the uh, uh, Eastern Christianity, Western Christianity, and, and I, I do appropriate. I do appropriate some of the some of the best of their insights. And, and for not not just kind of like a magpie picking and choosing, you know, what I wanted. But mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I tried to do it in a, in a coherent, consistent way, showing that uh, the beauty was fundamental to understanding reality itself, reality, the structure of reality. So so where, where this originally came from was the idea of what's called the transcendentals of being. Being is uh, is the most general and comprehensive concept that we have that we have to describe everything that exists. So, you know, the idea of a to be is a property uh, common to all things that are that really exist. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, to get to do more than simply talking about something as existing, the transcendental, the you know, throughout the the early patristic era and up through the the medieval era, um, up to the Middle Ages, we beauty, were, you know, in general or or on the whole, was a, considered a transcendental quality of being, along with uh, truth and goodness and and oneness. Now, now this wasn't kind of a de novo, a brand new kind of uh, conceptual, you know, framework. Uh, it's actually from the early Greek period. These, there's what's called the triad, the, the transcendentals of, say, particularly triad, meaning the, the three of truth, goodness, and beauty, were you know coming coming out of uh, you know the, the writings of Plato mm-hmm. and, and others in, in the early Greek period. What the what the church fathers did and, and theologians were were kind of recognizing that they were onto something. That that reality, that the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty correspond that, that corresponding to the good the, the the true and the beautiful they speak of of reality being knowable reality ha- in, in its in its right form being desirable mm-hmm. and reality in its 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 best you know its its proper expression uh being d- taking delight in it causing a, a sense of delight to to those that behold that reality so in these terms, it's an ontological thing, not not simply epistemological, like where like the, some method of knowing something, like just a methodology. It's it's meanings to say that uh, transcendentals of being get at the very ontology of of, this, of reality, and and their insight, their insight was yes, God created the the heavens and the earth in such a way that it is in fact knowable at least explorable and discoverable in a, in a, in a, in a growing developing kind of way. Not that, you know, everything just by mm-hmm. perceiving it time. Uh, and that, you know, that, that things that there's a propriety to things that, that something, uh, in its, uh, what by its nature was meant to be is good. There's a goodness an inherent goodness. And that when things are in, in, in its, in their order and the propriety, uh, as they were meant to be, it, del- it causes delight. In this sense, beauty is not just a discrete thing like, oh, isn't that sunset beautiful? 
or isn't that vista of the meadow uh, something beautiful to behold? But it was actually, you know, I mean, it literally is, is the metaphysics that they were working with. But, but the, the point is, or, the, or their insight was the structure of reality we can, we can uh, uh, address and, and, and talk about in these terms. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, theologians in the early church focusing on beauty brought out the subjective nature of it. And, and they did it in different ways. But, uh, for instance, Anselm talked about the, the fittingness of God's plan uh, of redemption. You know, the, the fittingness of, say, how the, a tree was involved in the devil's temptation and how in the plan of God, the devil is defeated uh, by, by the Messiah uh, being crucified on a tree. Mm-hmm. Anselm, uh, getting this uh, in, in, in large measure from the legacy of uh, Augustine himself, you know, they, they, they paid attention to these symmetries, to these proportions, to the structure of the plan. Now, sometimes their, their metaphysical assumptions drove them to overqualify mm-hmm. something, over, overstate something, uh, as, as an example. And, and, some, uh, in, and, and following, following the, the, the previous uh, lead of uh, Augustine, I might add, you know, said, well, those, those that God redeems are going to, you know, one for one, replace the fallen angels, because everything God does is perfectly, you know, symmetrical in, in such a way that there wouldn't be anything that was, well, we have, you know, too many of one. And, you know, so, yeah. so, so they, they, they just kind of assumed, they, they took some of their aesthetic assumptions and, and, you know, and drove them maybe a little bit too much. But, you know, we can we can, I think, be uh, forgiving if, if something is, uh, you know, over presumed or something like that, at least flag it. But but we don't have to throw the baby out with, with the bathwater. And we see in the very beginning of, again, going back to Genesis, the idea of the, of the good and the be- uh, true and the beautiful, again, part of the created order. Now, this is in the context of Genesis three, uh, where in the event of the fall of Adam and Eve. But but what uh, but what I'm quoting here in Genesis three, six precedes the event of the fall itself. Mm-hmm. So quoting uh, uh, verse six in chapter three. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there's the good and it was a delight to the eyes, there's the beautiful and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise there's the true, she took of its fruit and ate. So, I mean, so I, I, I think, you know, you can see these, these, these correspondences uh, without forcing it, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, and, 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 the, and the early, the patristics and the medieval theologians, that's what, they, that's what they saw. They said, yeah, yeah, we can affirm, we can affirm some of these insights from, you know, our early, uh, some of the, 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 the Greek sages, and 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 uh, see where they're consistent with with the biblical story. Yeah, the the transcendentals as categories seem to be there from the very start of of Genesis, right there embedded in Genesis three. That's good. Historically, I feel like I have a better grasp of of these conversations in the early church. Uh, thanks to your book, so thank you. You know, your fundamental argument in the book is profoundly simple that. Everything God does is beautiful in its God-glorifying nature. Everything God does is beautiful in its God-glorifying nature. We've talked about fittingness. Now expound on on this, the God-centeredness of beauty. The God-centeredness of beauty has everything to do with starting with the objective beauty of the person of Christ, 
the beauty of the work of Christ, what's, what's traditionally called redemption accomplished, and the beauty of Christ's work ongoing through the Holy Spirit, traditionally called redemption applied. So, so these are, these are, those three things are the preeminent aspects of how everything God does is beautiful yeah. and it's God glorifying nature. Now, I might add all of this is, is in accord with the redemptive eschatological fulfillment mm-hmm. of his original creational purposes. But, but so I start off with the doctrine of God. I, I discuss how the, the economical activities of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit reflect a proper fittingness, but more than a proper fittingness, a perfect fittingness in all of their outward works, you know, and, and what, how, why, what, what makes it perfect? What makes it perfect is because the fullness of God's glory is brought to consummative fulfillment. And, that, and, that, and that's why it's a perfect fittingness. And then, you know, but, but I use this phrase, the Christological contours of beauty. And, and that refers to how the outworking of God's eternal plan through the sun brings the brings is what brings this consummative expression of fullness to mm-hmm. of God's glory. Yeah. The one other point is how the beauty of our formation as Christian disciples involves Christians living out fittingly their identity in Christ. That participation of of the imitatio Christi, of imitating Christ, of, of following Him, of having this this attitude in you, which was in Christ Jesus, uh, uh, and all, all these these ways that the New Testament calls us to to maturity in Christ. There's a fittingness of being conformed to His very nature, to His image, yeah. and that that's part of this this God centeredness. Except it's from God centeredness more focused to Christ centeredness. In this case, our spiritual transformation uh, uh, from the Father through the Son uh, in the Spirit. Yes, and speaking of the Trinity, um, explain this line to a lay audience. I love this quote: "The beauty of God add extra outwardly." as it is perceived and experienced by human beings is what most clearly evinces or displays that perfection of beatitude and sense of delight that belongs to the Trinity ad intra inwardly page 59. You mentioned this earlier, but explain to us again, what are you getting at when we talk about it like this? Yeah, I really appreciate you selecting that particular quote. It was one that, yeah, I kind of, I kind of came to little by little. Um, what this has to do with is the theological aesthetic relation between beauty and God's beatitude, and and so we can follow uh, uh, the line of argument for for this particular uh, this theological aesthetic relation, you know, um, like this, you know, point when in four points. Uh, point one: the beatitude of God is the eternal condition in Himself of absolute satisfaction and delight, which is, and that's bound up with God's fullness of glory as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that, that's a traditional understanding of, of God's beatitude. This is, this is not something that I'm kind of just coming up with myself. We may not hear a lot about the attribute of God's beatitude, but it, it is traditional in, in uh, the ch- throughout church history. The, the point two is um, the outward beauty of God is expressed and perceivable as an aesthetic quality of his glory in his work of creation, redemption, and consummation. And, and it's important here to, to call attention uh, to the distinctive characteristic of beauty, uh, which is that beauty as beauty is not desired as a means to another end. Right. But, but the pleasure or delight associated with beholding the beautiful is its own end. 
think ahead, you might you might even be able to tell where I'm going to here. And point three, uh, point three is that characteristic to communicate delight as its own end is correlative to that absolute self-delight that characterizes God's own eternal, internal life as Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, so beauty, the, the, the uniqueness of beauty in, as, as, as opposed to goodness or truth, to just talk about the transcendentals there, is that, that beauty evokes a delight, but it, you don't use that delight to then, you know, do something more. It, it, it is its own end. And, and, and we talk about God's beatitude, it is its own end. It's self-delight. He's self-satisfied. Where I draw this all together is, is with the, the postulation that the beauty of God in his outward works as it is perceived and experienced by human beings, is what most clearly betrays or points to uh, that that perfection of beatitude and and sense of delight that belongs to God in himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Beautiful. I love that. Uh, So are you comfortable with the language of God as being the happiest being in the universe? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Yeah, me too. And I think it's huge. I just wanted to state it. Uh, he wants to be seen and enjoyed and delighted in. Uh, you're a student of Jonathan Edwards. What does he add here to the conversation on understanding happiness and specifically how we enjoy God's beauty? Yeah, I mean, and, and the idea, in fact, the, the actual, uh, in English, the, 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 the use of the word happiness is, is specifically what, what I would use is in terms of human beings, you know, sharing in yep. uh, ultimately and in, 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 in our eternal state, uh, God's, ha- for God's happiness. Um, now, now, for Edwards, he affirms, of course, both the objective uh, nature of God and as well as the subjective uh, dynamic of beauty, the objective aspect of God, he, he, he refers to as primary beauty. But, but for him, it's, it's, rela- it's a function of or, or um, in terms of, of this consent or conformity to God. So, so, so for Ed- Edwards, primary beauty is not, you know, not simply uh, in regard to objects or, or things or the sunset or whatever. It's, it's, in rela- it's within the context of relationship. And so it, it, it presumes uh, uh, persons of, with volition and the capacity to love. And so, so that's the, but so, so to the extent that our wills and our love and our affections are uh, attuned and, and drawn into God, to that extent, uh, we're participating in, in uh, what Edwards calls primary beauty. But, but at the same time, he affirms the subjective dimension of primary beauty in terms of the delight or aesthetic pleasure that, that elicits when primary beauty is, is present or, or, or perceived. So, um, he says that, um, it's especially in the context of God's saving grace, you know, salvifically, that, that human beings infused by the Holy Spirit are, are granted these spiritual affections, these religious affections that accord with the beauty uh, and the delight of God's nature. So, so if, if, if our affections, if our religious, what he calls our religious affections, accord with the delight in God's nature, we're participating in that delight. He, he says it this way. I'll, I'll do a, a short Edwards quote. The, the first effect of the power of God in the heart in regeneration is to give the heart a divine taste or sense to cause it to have a relish of the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of the divine nature. So, yeah, he's uh, 
is God the happiest person in the in the, in the existence? And and this is Edward's way of saying yes. And and that sense of the heart is how God draws us into that. Beautiful. Yeah, that relational connection is really important. I love. I love the fittingness angle of your book as the objective basis of aesthetics. Um, at the start of the conversation, you mentioned beauty as something above and beyond utility and function. I can imagine one pushback. It's one I've had myself because it seems to me that in this age of technology, there's a certain functional fittingness. Um, at my desk right now, I see a USB port in the computer and, and a USB wire plugged into it. Uh, the fittingness is obvious. Uh, it was designed that way. I don't find it to be beautiful. Uh, the USB port, traditional USB port, is not beautiful to me in any way. Should I see beauty in the fittingness or is there a fittingness that's just purely functional? No, that's a, that's a good question. And there's no, there's no reason um, to oppose fittingness with functionality. Yeah. Okay. In fact, in fact, going back to the medieval perspective of it, uh, something that was properly functional was, was by definition meant that there's a fittingness of beauty to that. But something can be simply, you know, functional, utilitarian, get, get something done but lacks a certain a certain aesthetic to it or or has a low aesthetic if we want to use that or a low fittingness uh, uh, idea um, and and so fittingness is it is a matter of degree things are not fitting in, in, in fullness in, in complete in as much as they could possibly be necessarily or or completely unfitting <laughs> so 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 fittingness is is like beauty there's there's degrees uh, of that right so for instance if you know I'm not trying to be a, a plug here for for uh, the the Apple computer but but we know I mean it's it's well known how Steve Jobs what well, uh, in his when he was uh, uh, at the helm of, of Apple he was insistent that their product development prioritize the aesthetics mm -hmm. of their of their of their products. Now, did he? You know, he didn't have to do that, but I mean, so their, their computer or their iPod or, or whatever the case may be, uh, you know, iPads, they, they could they could have been just as functional but less aesthetically pleasing and and and, and rich. But but he he made it a point to prioritize that. So so to your little scenario about the different plugs and all this stuff, I think I think what we want to at least appreciate is that many times in our in our kind of boorish kind of not not valuing the aesthetic dynamics of, of the world of life of our life lived in the world, we settle we we settle for very things that are have are very unfitting, ill fitting. I'll use that word very ill fitting have low aesthetic uh, expression. But that doesn't mean it needed to be the way. And, and there's, there's things, if, if, if someone cared, they could, in fact, shape things, express things, uh, form things, so, so that their fittingness, the, their aesthetic expression uh, beco becomes much more bold, much more apparent. And so I think it really is a reflection, reflection of, of how, how we're, what we settle for. Yeah, that's good. You know, we talked about Edwards and the divine sense. Uh, one of the phenomenal points you make in your book is is about the spectacular glory of Christ in human form. Uh, this is a theme I also see in Pastor John's book, A Peculiar Glory, chapter 11. As a Bible reader, I sometimes um, assume that moments like Christ's resurrection or his transfiguration are somehow 
extra beautiful and extra glorious. Like it's a glance at Christ shining beauty, sort of breaking free from behind the cloak of uh, of of his bland humanity. You correct this. Uh, you write quote. God's glory in Christ all during his earthly career is best appreciated not in an apophatic way, that is, as veiled by his humanity, but in a cataphatic way, that is, as revealed in and through his humanity. So good. So we see the beauty of Christ not apophatically in what Christ isn't, but rather cataphatically in what Christ is and displays. Explain this, if you got to explain this, and how Bible readers uh, see the glory of Christ in every verse of the Gospels. Yeah, this is one of those unanticipated uh, insights mm-hmm. that I got in the course of my research, in the course of my you know, coming to understand beauty, uh, the beauty of the, the person of Christ uh, specifically. So I start off uh, uh, discussing how Christ is the image of God uh, made visible in and expressed through the form of his humanity. As such, uh, the the beauty of Christ is inherent in and expressed through his human form. Now, a common view, a common view throughout church history, or and certainly in in more modern uh, contemporary times, a common view is that Christ's actual glory, we talk about the glory of Christ. Well, well, a, a common view is that his divine glory was hidden was hidden or veiled beneath his humanity. And, and, and Calvin is, is uh, exhibit one uh, guilty of this. Talks about the, the, the Christ in his state of humiliation, his, his human form hiding his glory. Uh, so and the idea of being Christ's flesh, his human flesh, acted like a reverse shield of sorts, you know, to prevent his real glory from, from being openly seen. Now, the, the problem with this is that if, if Christ's glory was actually concealed by his human form, (laughs) then God the Son operated totally incognito as Jesus Christ in in the form of a slave, as as Paul puts it in in Philippians 2.7. Because his true identity as God the Son was in this view, was was actually concealed by a veil of flesh. And, and, And a further problem is that it suggests, uh, or, or part of the same problem, I should say, is that it, it suggests a competitive view between the relationship between the divinity of God and, and the humanity of God. They're in tension, in uneasy tension with each other in this way. So, uh, you know, instead, uh, what, what I argue is that the humanity that Christ took on in the form of a slave as, as Philippians 2 talks about, affirms that God's essential nature, you know, his glory is how I uh, uh, equate his essential nature, is, is in fact revealed. And it's revealed in the most transparent, self-revelatory way. And so uh, from an aesthetic angle, the idea of, of the form of things is, 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 is so prominently uh, important when you talk about the, the aesthetics of something, its form. And and but form and content have to go together. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so in in, in Christ, the, you have perfect form or the form of, of Christ in his even in a state of humiliation, what what Paul calls the form of a slave, is perfectly united to his inner content. That is to say, the person of the Son of God. 
So, you know, one way to put this, I, and I, I draw attention to this in my book and using the idea of what's, you know, uh, theologically referred to as the Christ kenosis, his emptying of himself from the form of God into the form of a slave is throughout the whole rich passage of uh, Philippians 2, 6, uh, 6 through 8. It's not that he exchanged the form of God uh, for the form of a slave, but that he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. And that's that's a critically important of critical uh, difference here. And so the idea that, you know, uh, why is this important to Bible readers is so we can appreciate in the most you know robust way the uh, the glory of God in Christ without without having without feeling like we, we have to kind of say, you know, there's just moments that he lets that glory out All, every single moment of Christ's life was the revelation of God in Christ and the glory revealed. But it, it manifested itself in different form and expression. So what I what I talk about is Christ's humanity was the assumption of a form that was most befitting for him to take in accordance with his role as Messiah, born under the law to redeem those uh, under the law, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. In other words, it would not have been uh, uh, as fitting for Christ to have assumed another form in his earthly earthly life, his earthly career, other than the one with that that is undertaking as the role uh, as the Messiah called for, mm-hmm. namely the form of a slave, so that he could have solidarity uh, with the least and the lowliness, as he offered perfect obedience to God the Father. And and I would just uh, finish with saying the 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 other important truth is that it it does it really does take the eyes of faith to perceive the beauty of the Lord. You know, and, and we see this, uh, the, I mean, the glowing example, I, I talk about this, of course, in chapter four, is the penitent thief on the cross who, in his abject state of humiliation and, and dying on the cross right next to Christ, who was naked and dying uh, with him, perceived the kingly, the regal status of Christ in his kingship. They asked if he could be with him. And and Paul uh, uh, says something that's just unmistakably clear in the same way in, in 1 Corinthians 2, verses uh, 7 through 10, Paul hits on the same idea, quote, uh, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Then he continues, these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. We do need the eyes of faith so that we can perceive what we will not perceive in our condition of total depravity and, and mm-hmm. blindness, ignorance. But uh, but it's not because that beauty is not there in its proper expression. It is there. But when and when our eyes are attuned to it, like that penitent thief on the cross, we see, we see Christ for who he, he truly is, Lord and Savior overall. Amen. A majestic King in triumph, hanging on the cross. That's it's beautiful. It is beautiful. I appreciated your interaction with Calvin on on this on pages one sixty five to one seventy two. It's really an essential theme in your book. We all must understand it uh, to see the glory of Christ. The Spirit must open our eyes to see in Scripture a beauty that really defies natural beauty. 
I, I want to shift to Material Beauty for a moment. We talked about Apple design, um, an appreciation for the iPad or an appreciation for fine art or an appreciation for classical music. It, none of those things precondition anyone to more readily embrace the beauty of Christ. There's a certain line of separation between seeing and loving fine art and seeing and loving divine glory. They require two very different ways of seeing. With that said, does a regenerate heart with new eyes for the beauty of God behold more material beauty in this world? In other words, does it work the other way around? Yeah, you really ask that in a very, very, uh, I like the way you ask that. I think we can give it a, a resounding yes, but, but it's not necessarily beauty as the world sees it or, or defines it. You know, so in a different way, I think a, re, a regenerated heart with, as you say, a new vision for the beauty of God uh, is able to take, in a sense, uh, that reality is somehow making itself known to us. You know, kind of kind of still still not not leaving behind this idea of the, the truth, goodness and beauty of reality. I like what Herman Bovink uh, says on this point. Quote, his short little statement, he says, Beauty always derives its content from the true and the good, and it is their revelation and appearance. Beauty always in, is in relation to form, revelation, and appearance. So Bovink, uh, you know, the, the Dutch Reformed theologian of the late 19th, 20th, early 20th century, uh, he, he got this. He, In fact, he was... He was one of the, the, the modern, contemporary modern uh, theologians that ascribed beauty as an attribute of God in, in his work of dogmatics. You know, looking at scripture uh, as, a, as another example in Romans, uh, of course, well known, 18 to 23 in chapter one. Uh, that, that's where we find the attributes of God's nature described as being clearly perceived in creation uh, and and. And what do what does Paul say that those attributes revealed in creation uh, reveal the glory of the immortal God to humanity? Now, we're fallen and we're not perfectly you know, our, our senses and our faculties. Our soul is not you know perfected and glorified mm-hmm. yet. But I think as in our regenerated state, we can you know, we can uh, I don't want to I want to be careful not to overstate the point. But 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 I do believe the Christian has the the, the spiritually enlightened truth and understanding to see the creative world with new eyes, so, so to speak. And, and yes, uh, behold more and, and other dimensions of beauty in the world. Of course, we, we don't want to limit our understanding and, and sense of this to mean just the beauty of the natural world and, and, and such things as various works of art that, that gifted people uh, create and, and produce. Um, the beauty found in the world with our what I was saying is spiritually enlightened uh, truth and understanding is includes the actions and activities mm-hmm. uh, and beauty of a spiritual kind. So uh, as an example uh, of this, the, the spiritual kind, let me let me call attention to Matthew's account of Jesus in uh, uh, chapter 23, verses 6 through 13. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And of course, the, the New Testament uh, you know, written in Greek, that word for beautiful that Jesus uses is the word kalos, kalos. Mm-hmm. That which is that rich aesthetic definition or, or, or meaning. Beautiful is the right word to use here. The the act that the woman did was just so fitting in it in that context that Jesus calls it beautiful. So we don't want to trade one for the other. We don't want to say it's just spiritual beauty that yeah. that is the, the thing. Or you know, but nobody should say that we do need to trade. What what we what you asked was as a as a Christian. Regenerated by the Spirit of God, I guess it's valid to say that our senses, whether physical or or, or how our imagination takes in things, or, or our spiritual perception, with, with with all of these, we have the capacity to be attuned mm-hmm. to the beautiful in a more full-orbed way and and ways and in dimensions that the non-Christian is not attuned to. I guess that's how I would put it. Yeah, that's good. Our, our time is up. We've got to go. This has been fruitful, Jonathan. Uh, let's end with this. What, what's your hope for the book? Give us some final thoughts. The, the title of the book, uh, the first part of it is The Beauty of the Lord. I mean, that is uh, that, that comes from, of course, the, the, the most well-known expression of explicit attribution of beauty to the Lord. Psalm uh, 27, ver- verse 4. David Psalm, where he, he, he longs, he yearns to behold the beauty of the Lord, you know, to, and, and to, to just rest in ease and delight in, the, in God's temple. And so, you know, we're not there yet. Yep. We're, we're in what, what's, what's, what we know uh, in, in, you know, theological speak as the already but not yet yeah. <laughs> state, the time between the times, right? And so, you know, uh, if if uh, if I'm striking on you know something close to to what's what's true uh, uh, theologically, biblically, that that our sense of delight in the beauty of the Lord uh, is a, some, somehow like a reflection or correlated to God's own self delight within Himself, then you know, in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be beholding that, uh, you know, what I what I use, I use the expression, the an unalloyed reflection of God's own beatitude expressed as doxological, worshipful delight. And, you know, that's not static. That's as that that's that as, is as pregnant and as deep with with theological and, and dynamic import as you could possibly get there. I think Amen. I think that scripture is a little bit only says so much because our our finit, our, 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 our unglorified uh, finitude uh, now uh, couldn't, couldn't even you know get to capturing not not only the the objective beauty that we'll behold, but that sense of of subjective delight that we'll experience. The, the new heavens and the new earth, our eternal light, is not just about beauty, but as I said at the beginning, in in, in God's intention and, and design of creation. I don't want to make it just because I wrote a book about the beauty of God and his in, in the works of creation, redemption and consummation. I don't want to make it a, about like how beauty is kind of dominates mm-hmm. uh, more is more important or, or, or takes the place of or somehow somehow becomes, you know, the be all and end all. No, but I think if my book ca- can be a corrective, it's 
putting beauty back into back into the picture properly, where it's 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 part of uh, both experientially and, and within the you know reality of, of, of life. And so our end, whatever beauty we we experience in this world, both in a spiritual in spiritual terms and in natural natural terms, we, we, we know that that's we, we delight it. We, we, we love it. We, we, we think about those things that are most, you know, that are captured in our mind and our memories. But uh, in the in the age to come, in the age to come, there will be no just, you know, hearkening back that our longing, our longing, our yearning will be fulfilled. Ultimately, and, and perfectly, as we behold the beauty of God in Christ, in, in, in his glory and, and our glory with him. But the whole the whole realm, the whole realm, the universe as it will be, whatever that will be, will be will have an aesthetic and uh, that, that is beyond our imagination. Oh, amen. Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. Tony, it's been my pleasure. Really, thank you very much. That was Jonathan King from his home in Jakarta, author of the new book, The Beauty of the Lord, Theology as Aesthetics. Pastor John returns to the studio with me later this week, and I'll get you new episodes with him as soon as I have them, likely not for uh, probably another week or so. Thanks for listening to this long-form conversation. I'm your host, Tony Ranke, in Minneapolis. We'll see you shortly.